0: From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Growing up in South Africa, Dr. Michael Super traveled with his father on trips treating patients across Soweto and Johannesburg. Experiencing the contrast between traditional herbal remedies and modern medicine left him wanting to pursue human health. Fascinated by the spread of infectious disease, Dr. Super began medical school. When unrest and unclear futures came over South Africa after the end of apartheid, he left to continue his studies in London. Since then, Dr. Super has used his experience in creation and discovery to become a protein engineer, editing functionality of proteins to more efficiently treat infectious disease. Super's research leverages protein engineering to design therapeutics and diagnostic devices to treat cancer, infectious, and immunological diseases. You're a protein engineer, could you tell us what that is? Sure.
1: Protein engineering is a technique in which we use recombinant DNA technologies to give us new functions. We use the DNA to make new amino acids. And in my case, what I'm doing is antibody engineering, where I'm taking portions of an antibody that had previously been discovered. We might have a structure on that or something useful. And I'm actually fusing that to another Um, moiety so that I get a good new functionality. So I can kind of design what I'm trying to do for therapeutics.
0: One of your areas of research is in infectious disease. Mm -hmm. When did you become interested in this area? Sure. So my father
1: was a physician and he was actually working in Baragwanath Hospital in Soweto when I was a small kid. And there there was a very high level of infectious disease. And um, so thereafter it was, it was interesting to me in growing up in Africa. I grew up further in Namibia, southwest Africa. And there you got exposed to seeing how the different tribes dealt with infectious disease. For example, I, um, I would even go on, on vacation and, and, and bump into people like the Bushmen and see how they uh, um, used herbs and, and plants um, to, to, to treat uh, So So it was a very interesting place to grow up. Being that we were that far from, from, I'll call it from civilization, but that's not really fair. Uh, gi- given that we were, uh, you know, a thousand miles from Johannesburg, a thousand miles from Cape Town, people had to make do. And so instead of being in a situation like the Harvard Medical Schools, where when, as a physician, would think of who to refer this patient to, the physicians there were saying, what can I do? So we had many dinner table conversations about the patients my dad was treating. And, for example, here's here's, uh, uh, something that that really took my fancy and probably pushed me towards science. There was a theory that the people in Namibia had higher levels of cystic fibrosis because they had been part of something called the Dorsland Trek. These were people who trekked away from the British and actually went up into Angola, into the mosquito belt, and then came back down again into Namibia. And the theory was that they had, a little bit similar to the sickle cell trade story, that they had maybe got some kind of benefit from their CF in helping them to survive malaria. So what we actually did was to get the parents of CF patients and to see if mosquitoes would bite them. So that involved getting baby incubators, getting people to put their arms through, inoculating, as it were, with live mosquitoes and watching to, and counting to see who, we, who was bitten. It was a painful experiment, yeah, but it didn't imagine. actually work in the, in the long <laughs> run. <laughs> it turned out to be a different reason. <laughs>
0: Um, So we heard originally you wanted to be a veterinarian, but decided to focus on human health. What influenced you Mm -hmm. um, originally to be a veterinarian and then to change your mind?
1: So I was very interested in in being a large animal vet. And then my uncle, who's an optometrist, started a study to see if an antelope called the kudu um, had something interesting about their optic reflexes. The story was that people were... um, Having accidents with these antelope at night when they were driving along local roads, a bit like the white tailed deer here, but really bad. And it's a larger animal. And, and so the theory was that there might be something about their optic reflex. And so we actually went to the Atosha Pan and darted a kudu and followed it uh, and eventually tested its eyes and found there was nothing wrong with the optic reflex. <laughs> I think what was happening was that the animals were just grazing too close to the road and mm-hmm. got spooked by the lights. But that, that got me very interested in, in the animal research, but then I realized that you know it, was, it took so long to do that one experiment. I realized mm-hmm. that if I wanted to make any impact in human medicine, I would actually have to uh, work in the lab and, and do something a little bit more mainstream. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you started studying at the University of Cape Town, then left and finished your degree in the UK. Why did you leave, and what was it like making that transition? Mm.
1: So I grew up during apartheid, and this was all happened before Mandela was released, and so it was it was not the best place uh, to grow up in South Africa. One couldn't really see um, a clear future. Um, there was obviously going to be a tremendous level of of disruption, and while i wanted to be part of the new south africa i also realized that for my education i needed to go somewhere else probably and so what i did was to start um uh my degree in south africa but then i actually changed to england which was not an easy change because it was essentially mm-hmm. going back to school and getting into a new education system and then uh, uh, trying to make your way there
0: you worked in virology at the Royal Free Hospital in, L- in London while you went to night school at Burbeck College. Um, this was in the early 80s during the HIV AIDS epidemic. What was the atmosphere in London at that time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, on a personal level, everybody was freaking out, really. You know, th- this was even before uh, people knew that uh, AIDS was caused by the HIV virus. It hadn't been described. There were certainly no therapies. Um, people were losing friends. I don't think I lost anybody I know. Mm-hmm. But but it was certainly a, a much more scary time. Um and and things like the play Torch, Torch Song Trilogy uh, came out, which made an enormous impact on people. At the same time, I was working in virology. So uh, working on cytomegalovirus, which actually a lot of people um, with HIV AIDS died of CMV. Um, and so it was interesting to us uh, on an on a, in, in intellectual level and in a virology level, and realizing that this new disease was actually gonna change medicine because then, like now, most of people were researching on oncology, on cancer, and this infectious disease came along, and one realized that this was just going to change the way that we, that we did uh, medicine and did clinical trials and the like. And for example, in the case of HIV, um, the the the. the Development of of AZT as a monotherapy, followed by combination therapies, followed by activists uh, working with and on the FDA, really changed medicine to to uh, accelerate clinical trial development.
0: Um, and I'm not sure if I'm the only one, but Cytomegalovirus. You said that's a lot of what people were dying from, Yes, well,
1: what I'm I'm really trying to say is that, you know, I was working on this virus that was important in, for example, people who were immunosuppressed uh, for organ transplant might die of cytomegalovirus, even though it's quite a common virus. If patients are also immunosuppressed, for example, in the case of HIV AIDS, then they may die of the other virus.
0: Um, your Ph.D. work focused on mannose-binding protein. How did you choose to focus specifically on that?
1: Mm-hmm. I, Well, it chose me, actually. Uh, what ha- what happened was that uh, just when I finished my master's at Birkbeck, um, there was a program funded by the Action Research for the Crippled Child in England where they were looking for a protein engineer to be able to find out what was wrong with a group of children that they were studying at great ormond street children's hospital what was happening with those kids is they were getting many bacterial and fungal diseases especially in the first 18 months of life and they seemed nobody could work out what it was that was wrong with these patients but they knew that if they gave them fresh frozen plasma which at that time was still allowed, kind of as a <laughs> therapy. Uh, this was before HIV/AIDS worries, and so the blood transfusions were more common. Um, they found that they were able to um, reconstitute them and 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 recover them from these diseases. So what my PhD turned out to be is finding out what was wrong with these children, and what I found out was that they were. Missing or they had low levels of this protein we called mannose binding protein. It had only just been discovered In fact, some of the preliminary work were done was done here at children's hospital Yeah, and it had just been published and one of the first things we did was to see if our cohort that I had been looking up had actually low levels of MBL Mm -hmm. Mannose binding protein or mannose binding lectin and if that was what was wrong with them and indeed that is the case
0: um, you're now at the Wies Institute. Could you describe the kind of work you're doing now?
1: Sure. So I'm actually working on manospining lectin again. What I did when I came back to Harvard uh, after some time in industry in the U.S. was to actually make something we called FC-MBL. That is MBL linked to the FC portion of IgG. The reason I did that is because I wanted to make a version of MBL which had A longer half-life which you get with EFC which was easier to purify and had certain functions removed I didn't want it to activate complement or clotting or to activate phagocytosis so I engineered that protein engineering we were talking about I engineered the protein into being more close to what I wanted for um, diagnostic and therapeutic applications that we wanted to perform One of them is a dialysis-like therapy in which we actually put the FCMBL on a filter, like a hollow fiber dialysis filter. And we can, at the moment this is in animal trials, but we can run the animal blood through that and clean pathogens directly out of the animal patient's blood using that. And we've also used it for diagnostic applications where we could have it on an ELISA plate or a magnetic bead and we could actually capture pathogen material called PAMPS, which is pathogen associated molecular patterns, directly from the pathogen from the patient's blood. And that can be live or dead. But once we've caught it, we can actually then use that material and detect it and say, yes, this patient indeed has an infection.
0: Um, You're involved in Harvard Catalyst Summer Clinical and Translational Research Program. Mm -hmm. Could you describe your role in the program?
1: Sure. What I'm doing there is mentoring people. So we have SCTRP, and don't ask me to remind you what the acronym (laughs) is, Um, uh, uh, students who come to us from, oh, I don't know. Back in 2013 until this year, every year. And what these students are are incredibly bright students who have come to the Harvard program and they have not got a lot of experience usually in working in the lab. Many of them want to do medicine, but they want to see what clinical medicine would be and how does that relate to laboratory medicine. And even though I don't run a clinical lab or anything like that, the kind of work that I'm doing is very relevant. And so, for example, For example, if we we get them involved in some of the DARPA projects that we've been working on. So, for example, some of them have been working on the diagnostic application I just described. But they may be doing it in a different way. They're using the diagnostic application for measuring pathogens or contaminants rather in food. Others will have worked on another program of ours, which is a slippery surface program. And the idea there is to prevent blood clotting thrombosis on medical devices or prevent, for example, um, biofouling. So these students really get in there and understand what's going on. They come to our DARPA meetings, which are every couple of weeks, and they present, and they, they really get involved and become part of the team.
0: Why is mentorship important in science?
1: I think it's important because it's becoming more and more obvious that one can't do it all oneself. And so it's really important to have a good team and to be able to work with experts in various fields. And in mentoring, it's so important because then these these people are coming through with other interests and they're growing that and in as doing so are sort of complementing the group as well as learning for themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Who have been some of your mentors and why? How have they advanced what you've done?
1: Mm-hmm. So. On, on, a, on a professional level, of course, my dad, as you heard. I've also had mentors here like Don Ingber, the founding director of the VEAS, and Alan Ezekiewicz, who, who brought me to this country, um, and, and um, Mac Turner in London. But actually, to a large extent, um, I've been very lucky because I've been surrounded by very strong women. Uh, in my life and they've pushed me hard and so my boss now mary tolikas but then my mom who is a a holocaust survivor Mm -hmm. my wife who's a a designer uh, working um, in universal design one of my daughters is a nurse practitioner the other daughter is an engineer and so once again we sort of get around the dinner table and talk about the science Mm -hmm. that we're doing and the problems that we have and 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 really come to it as a group Thank you for
0: joining us, Dr. Super. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Next time on Think Research. So I felt that I was faltering and never reaching peak performance. So I sort of conceptualized a model that I eventually researched in my dissertation, looking into uh, psychological traits and behavioral tendencies that may influence the ability to uh, not choke and uh, sort of reach that zone flow state. We hear from Dr. Roland Carlsted about how he uses sports psychology to better understand athletes' mental toughness. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.